Welcome to this episode of Law Girl. I'm Jasmine Dea coming to you from my personal injury law firm, Jasmine Dea & Company, located in Midtown Toronto. Joining me today is the esteemed Jonathan Rosenthal. Jonathan is a Toronto-based criminal defense attorney. His practice focuses on white-collar matters and regulatory offenses. He's appeared at every level of court in Ontario and the Supreme Court of Canada. He is an adjunct professor of Osgoode, where he is both co-director of the Trial Advocacy Program and the Intensive Program in Criminal Law. His bio keeps going into many things, and I'm going to just hit the highlights here with a few more things. Mr. Rosenthal is a former vice president of the Ontario Criminal Lawyers Association. He is an elected bencher of the Law Society of Ontario. He was the McMurtry Visiting Clinical Fellow at Osgoode Hall Law School for the 2018 to 2019 academic year. He is also a fellow of the American College of Trial Lawyers. Welcome, Jonathan. It's good to be here. So... There's a whole bunch of things I even said in my bio that I don't really know about, but we'll get to that shortly. I want to know first, I believe you went to Osgoode? I went to Osgoode Hall Law School. And why did you decide to go to law school? That was easy. I grew up in a quintessential Jewish home and I had a choice to become a lawyer or a doctor and I <laughs> couldn't stand the sight of blood. So I actually became a lawyer by default. So was it one of your parents that you need to go or you just knew you needed to go? It was a given, so I had to become a lawyer, and I figured if you had to be a lawyer, being a criminal lawyer by far is the most fun sort of lawyer you can be. Do you have criminal lawyers in your family? No. And how do you know it's fun? Because I've been doing it for over 30 years and I haven't stopped. Well, how did you know before you were doing it? Well, to be a, a lawyer sitting in an office all day, to me, would be one of the most boring things in the world. What other job do you get to dress up in a nice suit and put on a show every day? How about personal injury? We do that. Well, I won't talk about how many trials you've done and how many trials I've done. There's other things besides trials in a courtroom. Just saying, just letting you know. We'll talk about that another time. Sure. <laughs> okay, so your bio. What is a fellow? The American College of Trial Lawyers is a, an organization that started in the United States, which is just a group of trial lawyers that are selected throughout Canada in the United States. And you are also a bencher. And I'm going to admit something. You don't go to law school, at least not my law school, which was a good law school, by the way. <laughs> we talked about this earlier. I'm very proud I went to Queens. Yeah, it's in the top 10 in Ontario. <laughs> yeah, shut up. <laughs> so anyway, um, we did not learn about what a bencher was. And when I started practicing law, I used to get these emails every few years. I think it was every few years about the bencher elections. And I, I had no idea what this was, nor did I really care. Just like whatever. And then as I got older, I started thinking about well, what what is a bencher? So I wrote an article and it's titled, What the Heck is a Bencher? <laughs> well, I'll have to read that to make yes. sure I'm doing my job. Yes, exactly. I highly recommend that article. Um, but why don't you explain to our audience what a bencher is? What is your role? Well, lawyers in Ontario and throughout Canada are self-regulated. And that's actually the exception and not the norm. So we're an entirely self-regulated profession. And there are a bunch of different types of benchers. There's 40 elected lawyer benchers. There's five elected paralegal benchers. And there's eight lay benchers. And we're effectively the board of directors of the Law Society of Ontario, which regulates lawyers in Ontario and paralegals. Right now, there's about 55,000 lawyer uh, members of the Law Society and about 9,000 paralegal members of the Law Society. How long have you been a bencher? 
I'm in my second term. I had a brief hiatus in between term number one and term number two. So I've been a bencher since 2000, June of 2015. And you're enjoying it? It has its challenges. Okay. And what is the commitment, the time commitment? Because you're, you're also practicing law. And as a bencher, you know, how long are you doing that? How well, do you balance? I always made a joke that I uh, spend 50% of my time teaching, 50% of my time being a bencher, and 50% of my time practicing. And someone said, you're not very good at math. I said, actually, math is the best subject in high school. <laughs> so I probably literally uh, spend, I, I didn't do the math this year, but one year I spent about 65 days working as a bencher. Wow. That's a lot. It's enjoyable. It's interesting work. And I think it's very important uh, to help regulate our profession. Well, what is the most important thing, topic, something you've done of importance as a bencher? It would be hard to put my finger... Was it the statement of principles? <laughs> the, the one thing I'm not going to talk about today is the statement of principles. <laughs> no? I simply refuse. Okay. We can move past that statement of principles, but give me something else. What has been great to be a part of as a bencher? I, I think uh, the reforms to advertising were very, very important as a bencher. Mm -hmm. I think the law size commitment to access to justice is very important. And I think the changes as a result of this, what is it, this COVID thing that's been going around, I think that's going to be very important as well. The most important thing benchers do is make sure we remain a self-regulated profession. Many other jurisdictions are government regulated, which I don't think is really good for access to justice nor the independence of the bar. Mm -hmm. And so in terms of um, advertising, that really impacted personal injury quite a bit. Um, that must have been interesting to get submissions from various players in the industry. Any stories you want to share? Well, I don't want to share any stories except a story <laughs> of, of a good friend of mine who's actually a lawyer from, from Texas who came up to speak at the Criminal Lawyers Association. He's also a fellow of the American College of Trial Lawyers. And he said to me uh, something about some guy on the back of the bus and he thought he was in Florida. Oh, but he wasn't. No, he was in Toronto. He was right here. He was right here. And, and he, felt, he, he felt at home? No, he actually was shocked about some of the advertisements he saw. So you say he's from Texas? Yeah. And so they don't have that kind of advertising like they do in Florida? They don't. In Texas, all advertising actually has to be approved by the local bar association. So it's interesting to see an American, and you, you have the same look of surprise that I I, I am. I was like, oh, he felt at home here because no. I just assumed everywhere in the U.S. it was like that. No. Like that in-your-face marketing? No. Oh. So I, I think most of the personal injuries I spoke to during this long journey were actually pleased with the changes to the advertising rules and regulations. And do you think that the changes have actually changed the landscape? Yeah, that's a bit of a loaded <laughs> question. And I think you have to go back to why those changes were made, which is actually what the role of the law size, and that's to protect the public. And that's the most important thing that the law side does do is protect the public interest. And it was very important to make sure that people who were retaining lawyers, whether it was real estate lawyers, criminal lawyers, personal injury lawyers, weren't being misled in any way. Because most people think, you know, if Bell Canada talks about the highest internet speed and if it turns out 
it's not the highest internet, so they get in a bunch of trouble. So most people thought lawyers would have been highly, highly regulated in that area. And it, as it turned out, and as we all know, it wasn't quite the same. I think it's made a big change. I think there's a long way to go. Mm-hmm. Well, the pendulum really swung, right? Because before you couldn't do anything with advertising. That's correct. And then you seem to be able to do anything. <laughs> and it seems now you've tried to tailor it, take it back. Just I, a bit. I, I don't think it's come as far back. And the, the first uh, person who was actually disciplined by the Law Society for advertising is a guy by the name of Gary Gottlieb, QC. You can still see his sign at the northwest corner of Bay and Dundas, where he put up a sign, Gary Gottlieb, QC, and the Law Society brought a proceeding against him. He became, uh, I think, one of the first... Re- truly sole practitioners became a bencher and Gary was a a life bencher and used to come to the meetings he was a great guy and so that's where advertising really started and it it did go to the farm extreme I think there's an important balance somewhere in the middle where people can let the public know they're out there Mm -hmm. but still the public is not being misled in any way I don't disagree with that Uh, so you said COVID COVID changes down the pipeline, perhaps? Listen, anyone in any industry has in some degree, I guess, been impacted by COVID. I think the most important thing we've seen in Ontario is the jumping to deal with the issues that we had in the courts. And I give tip my hat off to all of the chief justices, Justice Strathy at the Court of Appeal. They quickly went to Zoom hearings, or it could be JVN or WebEx. Um, They insisted on certain hearings being in in writing. Chief Justice Morowitz of the Superior Court, again, jumped into the game really quickly to make sure important matters were heard via Zoom and other methods, allowed for electronic filings. And Chief Justice Maisnouf of the Ontario Court of Justice, again, the same thing with criminal uh, proceedings. I, I tip my hat to all of them to really coming to work quickly on these issues because access to justice is incredibly important. You can't shut down the courts. You can shut down certain business. You can't shut down people's access to justice. So I think we've seen some, if, if anything good has come from COVID, it's how technology is being embraced by all levels of the court that people haven't dealt with for a long time. And my sheer fear is that we go back. And I know all of the chief just said, we're not going to go back. And I know the government has issued commitments that they're not going to go back. And I think that's really important that we just keep on moving forward because access to justice and you use technology, what it does is it basically to the member of the public who has to retain a lawyer for any issue becomes a lot cheaper. So instead of paying their lawyer, you know, to drive from Toronto to Barrie for routine proceeding, can do it over the phone. So I hope that is the one thing that we've all learned from COVID that stays. And I think we've got some very, very strong chief justices who've made that commitment, who I trust their word when they say we're not going to go back. You sound like a politician. <laughs> because I say that because I agree with everything you have said in the sense that it makes sense for access to justice for us to move forward and use technology to 
benefit the public. Um, I, I've noticed also with these Zoom proceedings that, yes, I'm not spending hours of time in my car going to mediations, going to routine discoveries, going to routine motions. They can all be done through uh, Zoom. Um, also, filing documents. We were talking about earlier when we weren't recording, but it used to it used to take hours to file a simple motion record or a trial record. You know, someone would be standing there all day, whether I paid a process server to stand there all day or had a student going and standing there for hours, like six hours to file something. Whereas during COVID with a few matters that we were able to proceed with, we were filing electronically. And while I completely agree that you know, hopefully we're moving forward and not going backward. My concern is I've already started to see us going backward with the courts and their requirements. Um, and now on top of that, we have a backlog because the courts were closed for as long as they were. So hopefully you are right and we move forward and everyone keeps keeps in line with their commitments that they have announced publicly. <laughs> but we'll see. We'll see. You know, I've always thought it interesting that you could order a kosher, low-salt, vegan meal on an airplane and demand a window seat online, and you couldn't get a court date online. So I do have some true optimism that we're not going to go back to the way it was. One of the problems with law is we're an old profession where you would ask a question of why do we do it? And the answer would be, well, that's the way we've always done it. Tradition. But to me, that's not an answer. That's the way we've always done it. So I think we're all going to have to adapt. We've all adapted in our practice in the last uh, five or so months. And I think we're all going to have to continue to adapt. I've seen at least in the criminal uh, area of the bar, a level of cooperation I've never seen in my some 30 odd years of practice. That's a good point. Because one other thing I've noticed is that I actually now have the time because I'm not commuting everywhere for proceedings. I'm doing everything virtually. I now have the time and perhaps the mental ability because I'm not stressed with traffic on the 401 or bumper to bumper traffic on the DVP or whatever. But I have the time to actually communicate in a more cordial manner with opposing counsel. And it's actually really enjoyable. And I miss that. I think we had gotten so busy and so stressed. And a lot of that comes with, you know, we're in a fast paced industry and I hope that the fast paced returns because I love what I do in that way. But um, the commuting, like it really was wearing me down and I didn't realize until the commute stopped. Now, don't get me wrong. I like getting out of the office um, every once in a while. But uh, yeah, I have seen that things are so much more cordial with opposing counsel and that I have the time now to uh, discuss our files and and discuss issues and talk about how to resolve them in in a different format than it had been, in a much better, friendlier format. I mean, we're still adversarial where we need to be, but things have definitely changed. And listen, I think this pause may have permanently caused that sort of impact. And that's one of the, if there's any good thing that comes out of this disaster that may also stay with us for a long time. Yeah. Duty of civility, a reminder, silver lining, right? 
Um, okay, so let's move on to what I really want to get to, which is what does a criminal lawyer actually do? That is what you practice. So tell us, what do you do? Well, that's that's a really hard question to answer in such a short period of time because we do a lot of different things. There is no typical day for a criminal lawyer because you never know what the day is going to bring. Now, we've all watched the TV shows and you've seen the traditional stuff that the public probably does know about. People are charged with a crime. The crime takes place. The police show up. They find the guy they thought did it. Then there's eventually a trial. So that's kind of the traditional stuff that a lot of criminal lawyers do. But then there's a ton of work that criminal lawyers do of, you know, I pretty well spent my career keeping people's names out of the paper instead of in the paper. So there's a lot of work that some criminal lawyers do pre-charge that are giving advice to people who may be under investigation. Uh, they may be giving advice to people as to what is legal and what is not legal. They may be negotiating with various authorities pre-charge to, to somehow make sure things never see uh, an arrest or a courtroom. So if I'm looking into buying a new business and I have some questions with some shady characters before I do that I should come talk to you well I'm not sure I could tell you about the shady characters well not about the shady but about the business you can probably learn from a criminal what is legal what's illegal what things are going to get you in trouble what things aren't going to get you in trouble so you are not just uh, involved in a situation where crime is committed person is charged, they come to you. What you're telling me is you also try to prevent the charge yeah. by giving some good advice. Or if someone has committed offense to prevent the charge by somehow seeing if something can be worked out so a charge is never laid. Okay. and But is that normal for a criminal lawyer? Is that what most criminal lawyers do? I wouldn't say that's not I would say that's what most criminal lawyers do, but there's a lot of people now who have businesses and something they think something's going on at their business and they'll hire a criminal lawyer to take a look at the situation, see if something has been uh, wrong, whether an offense has been committed, whether an offense has been committed, whether they have an obligation to report that sort of offense. And as our world gets more and more complicated with computers and internet and financial transactions and stuff like that, there's going to be more and more of that kind of interesting work. And to me, that's the more interesting stuff mm -hmm. that criminal lawyers uh, do. Pre-COVID, what did your days look like? You mentioned every day is different. Every day is different. So there's days where I would have a trial and I'd have to go to court to do a trial. There's days where I'd wake up early in the morning and check my uh, email and there was a crisis that I had to deal with. It could be someone was arrested. It could be a business that got a call from the police and wanted to know what was involved in the matter. So that's why I say there's no typical day for a, a criminal lawyer, like a personal injury lawyer. Yeah, there's no I know. Typical day. Every day was you know, different pre-COVID. You, know, you, you would wake up there's a snowstorm you had to get in there early to answer the phone yeah yeah thank you thank you for that little slight right in there <laughs> in case in case our audience didn't realize he's talking about car accidents car accidents don't or slip call, and falls or what call them car crashes only a trial oh only a trial for our jury because i didn't think there were accidents <laughs> <laughs> Next, he's going to be asking me about that ambulance. Um, so anyway, post-COVID, things have changed for you? Well, I don't think we're quite post-COVID. Okay. I wish we were. Okay, things have opened up a little. 
at this stage, we're not where we were April, May. So at this stage, have things changed a bit with how your practice is going or is everything the same? I mean, I, crimes are still committed. <laughs> you, you know, it's funny you say that because the first month or two, I saw a very uh, few new charges. I think the number of charges are going to go up. I, I have this horrible image of once we're fully opened, a bunch of people been locked up or locked down for a long time. Cabin are, fever. Are going to go out. They're going to get really drunk. And they're going to do a bunch of really, really crazy. Well, we're starting to see it. Stuff. We're starting to see. I think a little bit. I mean, similarly, um, you know, initially. We had no one getting injured <laughs> because everyone's at home. But isn't that a good thing? That's you know what? That is great. That is great. I think that's great. And if if no one got injured, that's fine. I will find something else to do. But that's not the way our world works. So they will need me again. Um, but you know, over the last little while with entering stage stage one, stage two, Toronto is still not in stage three at the time of this podcast recording. Hopefully we get there soon. Uh, but things have opened up. And uh, I think, you know, more people as society opens up, there's injuries. And similarly, I, there must be a little bit more crime. And I think this cabin fever that Ford has talked about, um, you know, people going stir crazy and you see these crazy parties happening, um, you know, there is a little bit of a surge in activity but you would be able to speak to that i mean you must have seen some things happen i just think that you know one of the things we talked about earlier is how you know we've kind of paused and we have new ways of dealing with people my fear is that when this is over people are just going to go back to their kind of old ways of road rage and honking at you and giving you a finger if you you cut them off and stuff but, I, well, but you must have seen all these crazy stunt drivers. Like I saw someone doing donuts in Dundas Square. Um, well, I didn't see. I saw it online, but uh, it was reported in the news. So someone doing donuts in Dundas Square and his friends were at each corner videotaping this. And then all of a sudden it's Dundas Square. So obviously there was police nearby and all of a sudden you hear the sirens. And but wasn't that a great video when you, saw, when you saw them coming right up Young Street, they passed Dundas. Square and they got the guy. Wasn't that awesome? It was a pretty good video. Um, it was like an episode of Cops, you know, it was done very well. There was also, you know, these kids on skateboards on the Gardner Expressway because it was empty. Did you going see that? Wrong way. Well, they were just going. They were on skateboards uh, going down the ramp and it was, I think, a TikTok video that went viral and then now the police were trying to track down these these people, these skateboarders. Uh, so you see all this craziness, but I guess crime is, well, I don't know, is crime down? I mean, there's so much gun violence in the city. Yeah, I, that I don't get. I really don't get that. And I can't offer an explanation. And I don't know what the crime stats are, where we're at. But as you were talking about the backlog in the civil court, we're going to have a huge backlog in the criminal court. So talk to us about that. I was going to ask because I know what's happening in civil, but I don't know what's happening in criminal. Like what was happening? What's happening when the courts were closed? Were matters being heard from a criminal perspective? No trials were being heard until July the 6th. So we've had no trials since, you know, mid-March. And they slowly have started to open up the criminal courts at a very cautious and slow pace. They're trying to bring matters back. I, you know, everyone's heard of 
the Jordan. Jordan, I was going to ask you, Jordan doesn't apply exemption for pandemic. <laughs> Listen, Jordan talks about an exceptional circumstance. I can't think of anything as exceptional as a pandemic unless we, God forbid, had a nuclear war. So I don't think people, and I know there's been some things in the paper about all sorts of criminals are going to get off. Number one, they're not criminals. They're people who are alleged to have committed a criminal offense. And number two, there is not going to be a wholesale withdrawal or uh, a wholesale number of charges dismissed under Jordan. I think Jordan, as it's written, this will pause. And I know some of my colleagues disagree with me. I think this will excuse and rightfully so delay for a long period of time. But if someone has been waiting years with this criminal charge, I mean, doesn't it depend on how long they've been? Been waiting in the system? Well, what Jordan says is you remove from that equation any exceptional circumstance. And as I say, I think this is the most exceptional circumstance. And certainly when Jordan was written, no one in Ottawa was scratching the head and wondering said, well, about a pandemic. What about a pandemic? Does that fit into <laughs> exceptional circumstance? But I think, listen, I think when courts go back and they're going to have to go back, you may see some triaging of less serious matters. What about other things you do with the court? So putting trial aside, were there other matters that could be heard during the shutdown? There were, and I, and I hope those are matters that are going to continue to be heard remotely. For example, bail hearings were all done remotely. And by the way, that's nothing new. The province of Alberta has been doing remote bail hearings. I can't tell you how many years, but for years and years and years over the phone via video. And I'm hopeful those sort of hearings will continue to be done remotely. All sorts of guilty pleas were being done remotely, some even on conference calls, like actually the vast majority of conference calls. And I'm hopeful, again, those sort of proceedings will continue to be done remotely. So right now, are they continuing remotely? Right now, the only things that are not remote are trials. Okay. And not happening. They've been happening on a very limited basis How do since they choose? July the 6th. How do they choose what gets a trial and what doesn't? Can't answer that. We don't know. I think it was actually matters that were scheduled during the time after July 6th until now. Mm, okay. Um, so we've talked about what your day is like and we know what types of clients you have. Do you have any interesting stories that you'd like to share? Not naming names, but any any of your cases sort of stand out to you as ones that would be very fascinating? Not that I'd really be comfortable talking. Okay. Well, what about an idea of a crazy case that you deal with, not a specific type. But there's also, there's so many crazy cases that I couldn't, you know, I couldn't pick one. Okay. I'm going to prod one more time. <laughs> what about any crazy, uh, I don't know, drug cases? Have you had a large shipment of something? <laughs> yes. Well, I didn't, I didn't get the shipment. You didn't? <laughs> you mean you're not a drug lord? <laughs> no, I'm not a drug lord. Oh, <laughs> That's news to me. I wouldn't be teaching at Osgood and working as a bench in the criminal. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Okay. For clarity, Jonathan Rosenthal is not a drug lord, but you have been involved in these cases as a lawyer. Yes. And are they, are, is there one area that's more fascinating to you or are they all the same? Listen, the most fascinating to me is actually the people who are alleged to have committed these crimes because sometimes they're very well-known people and you kind of have to shake your head and said, why would they do it? Sometimes there are people who appear to be living a 
more conservative life, if I can choose that word. So to me, the most interesting thing is actually the people who are alleged to have committed these sorts of acts. It seems that you love the area of criminal law. Am I right? Yes. Do you have any regrets about criminal law as your choice? As a lawyer? As a lawyer. No. If there was any other area that you could do, would you choose another area or would you stick with criminal law? I think I'd choose uh, criminal law. Uh, I guess the next exciting would probably be estates, real estate, tax. Tax. I'm kidding. Uh, I was like, okay. <laughs> I, I didn't realize it was, it a, was joke. a joke. It oh, was a joke. You're supposed to have a facial expression or something. How are we supposed to know? Well, my audience needs to hear it. But uh, yeah, I agree. That was definitely a joke. But I'm so happy to hear that you love your area as much as I love mine. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. 